ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. It's very concerning to me um, that these various cleanses and, and programs get put out because we really just don't know. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 183 with our good friend Dr. Rob Abbott. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn the difference between toxins and toxic, why detox protocols should concentrate on heavy metals and lipophilic toxins, and why paying attention to how your body reacts is still some of our best medicine. Thanks, Aurora. And just to let everybody know, we're getting this episode out a little bit late. We did travel to and from the Midcoast Maine Lyme Conference over the weekend, and we kind of got behind a little bit. 14 hours in the car will do that. (laughs) Only a little bit. Just a little bit. So this is coming out Thursday evening. So if some of you are used to downloading this Thursday morning, we're sorry, but we did get it out on Thursday, as we promise. And as you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This week we've had listeners from Portugal to Poland and from Indonesia all the way over to Italy. And a big thanks to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lyme Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. And this week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Number 9, Los Angeles, California. Number 8, Houston, Texas. Number 7, Spicer, Minnesota. Number 6, Pound Ridge, New York. Number 5, Bolton in the UK. Number 4, San Clemente, California. Number 3, Hyattsville, Maryland. Number 2, East Syracuse, New York. And number 1 this week is Edmonton, Canada. And if you just heard a giant snore, that's Rusty, the rescue dog, taking a nap on the floor. 
If you like what we're doing, apparently Rusty doesn't. He put him to sleep. <laughs> but if you like what we're doing, make sure to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really like what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja patron. Just go over to patreon.com and search for Lime Ninja Radio. And a big thank you to our new patron this week, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Also, we are hosting our weekly giveaway of Dr. William Rawls's book, Unlocking Lime. For the free book giveaway, you can go to Lime Ninja Radio front slash win. Last week's winner was Joan. Congratulations, Joan. We'll be sending you out an email pretty soon in the next 24 hours, and we'll get your address and send the book right out to you. I'm not sure how much longer this giveaway is going to go, so if you've been thinking about entering... Now's the time to do it. I don't think we're going to do it too much longer. Oh, and by the way, Dr. Rawls was at the Lyme conference yes. in Maine. And it was really lovely to hear him speak about his book and his approach to Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections. It really is a common sense approach. And he starts off basically with nutrition and with the idea that herbal supplements supplement your nutrition. And that in the old days... 50, 100 years ago, people were eating a lot more variety of plants, and now we're basically stuck with romaine lettuce and iceberg lettuce, and it's not a whole lot of variety. <laughs> and the herbs help fill in some of those phytonutrient gaps that we might have. That's just a plug. It's a great book. It's for free. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash win, and you could win it. Really, it happens. Joan knows. Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about our friend, Dr. Rob Abbott. For those of you who don't know, we've interviewed Dr. Abbott three, four times now. He's a regular guest. He's a good friend, and we are learning so much from him. He's visiting, finishing up his residency in medical school. It's just great to have a medical mind who speaks the language that doctors speak and researchers speak, because I and don't. cares enough to translate. Yes, exactly. So yeah. we like bringing him... And explaining how things really work. <laughs> so anyway, tell, Aurora, tell us more about Dr. Rob Abbott. Dr. Rob Abbott is a first-year family medicine resident at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Front Royal, Virginia. He graduated from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in 2017. He approaches medicine from an evolutionary and functional perspective and practices what he calls spiritually focused and evolutionarily informed functional medicine. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Dr. Rob Abbott. Hello, Dr. Abbott. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hey, McKay. Good to talk again. Long time no speak, brother. It's been a little while. We've been both very busy, I'd say. Yeah. Um, now, what, what rotation did you just get off of that you were working 180-hour weeks or whatever it was? I, I don't even think there's 180 hours in a week. Well, but, um, you, you get my point, though, right? <laughs> yeah. I um, I was just doing our... Uh, basically hospital medicine rotation. So caring for um, adult patients in the hospital, which on average is sort of a 12, 14 hour day, six days a week. Um, but it was the second time doing this for, for six weeks. So feeling growth and improvement and greater capacity to to do a good job. So, and I have, you know, plus that's some really great hospitalists as teachers. You know, we don't let us interns just completely 
do our own thing. That would be a, probably a, a big problem, but um, that was what I was doing um, for the past uh, six weeks. So that, quite a good time. You can come back up for air now. I can come back up for air. Correct. Yeah. And as soon as you popped up, I grabbed you. <laughs> You're good like that. You- the first thing I want to talk to you about is this brand new study that came out and it's a European study and it's a comparing doxycycline treatment for Lyme or actually it's not really Lyme disease, is it? With a tick-borne infection with, I can't even pronounce it, ceftriaxone? How do you That's sp- right, ceftriaxone. Ceftriaxone, okay. And so why don't you, you have access to the entire study the article why don't you tell us the details here because i'm sure people are going to be hearing about this because it raises lots of issues yeah so this study i was really glad that you sent it over um to me just i guess it was earlier today and i was able to get the whole article and and spend some time really digging into the the details now just as a aside for people you know you can looking at the abstracts gives you a really good idea if the authors do a good job of describing the study and their findings in the abstract, but it's oftentimes, you know, in the details that you get the real story behind the intervention. And so this study, like you said, came out of Europe and was essentially asking the question, um, was there any difference between treatments with doxycycline, which we know is sort of a most common oral medicine, um, versus a intravenous medicine, so a medicine that goes into the to an IV into the vein called ceftriaxone. Both of these are antibiotic medications. Um, I think we've talked about previously, they, they work through slightly different mechanisms. I was going to ask, are they the same class or are they different? And how are they different? They are, yeah, they are a different class of medicines. Um, so the doxycycline is sort of um, in a class called, called tetracyclines, which disrupts the sort of RNA protein synthesis of the bacteria. Um, and uh, the other medicine, ceftriaxone, is in a class of medicines called cephalosporins. And there's like many different generations, but they're you know, somewhat similar to the penicillin medicines. So they sort of disrupt more of the membrane function, um, the membrane integrity of, of bacteria. So two very different sort of mechanisms, but medicines nonetheless that are very commonly used uh, in cases of tick-borne illness and, and Lyme disease. Um, so yes, so this you know study was what's called a non inferiority uh, study. Essentially, they were taking the standard of care for this condition, which, as you mentioned, wasn't exactly you know, clearly Lyme disease. What they were actually identifying was a clinical condition um, known as the EM rash or the erythema migrans, and specifically, they actually were taking patients that had not just one identifiable EM rash, but at least two, so sort of multiple sites of EM rashes, um, which in general is you know, uh, was accepted to be a more disseminated infection as compared to, say, just someone who has one isolated EM rash. But they took patients with this, you know, mul- with multiple EM rashes, and the standard of care, at least in this point, was to give, you know, patients given the concern that it's a more disseminated infection, to give them the IV medicine, ceftriaxone, thinking that this was a you know, more serious infection than something that was 
isolated to just one lesion. And so they wanted to see, well, could oral doxycycline, you know, at its standard dose for the same period of time, is it, you know, non-inferior or basically is it as good as, uh, as ceftriaxone? And there's many reasons why we do these types of studies is, you know, if we can find a treatment that's less costly, less invasive, more tolerable, you know, we will opt to do that treatment over you know, uh, another treatment. Um, so a very practical question that they're trying to answer is this treatment as effective or not inferior to the quote standard of care. And so what they did is they took 200 patients um, and uh, split them into two groups. Um, so 100 patients in each arm of the study. So first of all, let's just patients. pause there for a second. That's a fairly yeah. good number. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a, um, and so they had calculated before the study the effect sizes and what they would need to see you know, to say that they saw a significant effect. So it's you know it's a fairly large, robust study. I mean that's that's a lot of people with EM rashes. With multiple, yeah, way. with multiple bullseye rashes, exactly. Uh, so yeah, quite a few people. Um, and so they they split them into two groups, and so so 100 people in the doxycycline group got um, 100 milligrams of doxycycline uh, twice a day for for two weeks, so just 14 days. And the other group um, got two weeks of the IV ceftriaxone at the standard amount of um, standard dose. I think it was two grams of, of that medicine. And they had a they took a bunch of you know baseline statistics between the groups, um, wanting to try to you know equilibrate them so that they could compare pre and post data. And this is what I found was very fascinating. So this is not something that's routinely done on you know the patient that comes into the ER with this rash. We're not the things that they did. From a research perspective, are not things that are going to be done in the ED, but they did a, um, quite a few th- things. So they they tested initially for the presence of antibodies, or to determine if these individuals were sero positive for an infection. So this is like doing the Western blot test. Um, and interestingly, sort of between the two groups, only about sixty-five to seventy-five percent of the people were sero positive. And as we've mentioned before, if you walk in with an EM rash, or in this case, at least two EM rashes. We don't even usually bother doing the lab testing because it's just like if you're in a region that has ticks, it's a tick-borne illness, it's Lyme, we're going to treat you with you know, doxycycline or ceftriaxone. Um, but they did baseline tests and about 65 to 75% of the people were seropositive. They took note of when the people first noticed the rashes. And in general, the average was between, um, you know, in terms of presentation and beginning treatment, was 9 to 12 days since they first noticed the the rash and only about half in each group had this sort of you know prototypical central clearing that kind of bullseye pattern um which i found quite interesting um they also did which is they mentioned before not very common tissue you know skin biopsies and skin cultures um and looked under the microscope something called dark field microscopy um, because lime is in a category of uh, bacteria called spirochetes that can be very difficult to identify through other means. So they did this skin culture and, and looked through microscopy and about half, a little over half um, of the participants in each group, um, they were able to identify an organism. Something we'll probably get into. The organism that they identified and should be noted, and this was all done in Europe, is actually d- different than the Borrelia burgdorferi that we commonly have here in America. It was a different type of Borrelia species. Um, almost universally, the ones that were positive had this uh, different 
different type of, of Borrelia. But so nonetheless, we, they were taking yeah, so um, we can, we can't skin s- and look at bacteria. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but so we can't say that they had Lyme disease, can we? Because Lyme disease so, is an infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. Yes, so the term that's commonly used in this broader category um, of infection is borreliosis, uh, basically you know, an infection with a yeah, borreliosis yeah. species of uh, a bacteria um, carried by a tick. Um, so that was you know interesting. Uh, the other thing that they did was uh, they also did lumbar punctures and took cerebral spinal fluid from patients, which is definitely not routinely done except for when patients present with essentially neurologic cases of, yeah, yeah. of Lyme disease. And they did mention that nobody at this point presented with any neurological disturbance. Um, they did find, I think, three to four people in each group that had evidence of um, antibodies, so IgM in the in their CSF, you know, the antibodies, and then what's another term called pleocytosis, but basically changes in the white blood cells. Um, but as I mentioned again, that wasn't a it didn't make a definitive diagnosis simply based off of the cerebral spinal fluid because the individuals didn't have um, clinical symptoms. And as we mentioned before, the time course of presentation, all of these people were almost you know universally within two weeks of developing the rash. Um, so it's extremely rare um, to have you know quote, neurologic Lyme or neurologic Borrelia in that short of a time period. Um, but that's, I mean, all these things that they're doing are remarkable in terms of tracking and and um, and looking at these patients. And they did a little bit too with symptoms. I think everyone here is like, well, what were these people feeling like? Exactly, the symptoms are important. Right. Um, and you know, obviously, the quote symptom for all of these the identifying symptom for these people was the rash. And interestingly, you know, when you dug into more things like fatigue or arthritis, um, joint pain, those types of symptoms, only about half, slightly less than half the patients in each of the two arms endorsed any type of constitutional symptom. Um, Really, the ones that they tracked were arthralgias, uh, which are joint pains, myalgias, kind of more muscle aches, headache, and fatigue. Um, so, So half of the patients, you know, excluding the the rash. Are really asymptomatic. Um, so you're already, uh, if you're going to look at any change in that individual in terms of symptoms, they would actually be developing new symptoms after treatment. Um, and if you're wanting to look at symptom resolution or changes in symptoms with treatment, only about half of the people in each group really sort of were able to be analyzed for pre and post symptom changes um, when it came to some of those constitutional symptoms. Um, so I thought that was actually rather interesting. Once again, that you know, a lot of these people just had this rash, and they're like, I, "This is kind of freaking me out. I don't really know." And some of them, you know, knew about a tick bite. Some of them didn't. Um, but only really half the people had any constitutional symptoms that we think about with kind of a tick-borne illness, That's like Lyme. Yeah, it's really remarkable, actually, because you, you think, okay, you've got the rash, then you're definitely going to have some symptoms after there, because. You're, you're sick and you're infected. But that goes back to our previous podcast in the condition of the immune system and how the body responds. So, it's, you know, if that's the, you know, another interesting point here that it come across, and this, this is totally non-scientific. And I know when we talk with you, we're really doing pretty hardcore science here. But many of the people who are sick never had a rash or don't recall getting one or had a rash where they never saw it. 
So I'm, I'm wondering if the rash, you know, with only half the people having symptoms is actually a healthy sign of a, a healthy immune system. And maybe people who get the rash may be even less prone than the general population. Just, just an interesting thought. Yeah, you're right. I think, um, I think we'd have to, in taking, looking at other studies, um, we're really just looking at a small portion of people who are manifesting the rash. And if we say that's 30%, which I mean, estimates of 30 to 40% of people that manifest a tick-borne illness or Lyme actually have the EM rash, there's a whole another subset of people that aren't right being studied as part of this intervention. And, um, and you can only start to speculate as to what's happening with them. I mean, they're obviously, most of them are not going to receive treatment in the same timely fashion as these individuals. I think everyone in this study received, quote-unquote, timely treatment, right. um, slightly different in terms of the antibiotic, but see, received timely treatment. And people are probably wondering now, they're like, well, you haven't told us like how it all ended. Um, uh, okay. and so the, <laughs> tell us, Dr. Abbott, how did this all end? <laughs> uh, so the, the, the main take-homes was basically, you know, after Dulcet and Dust, they tracked people. They followed them um, after two weeks, after two months, four months, and then again at six months, um, and even 12 months, um, repeating these same measures that they were following the, the entire time, they so found th- that uh, nearly that- everybody responded positively to, to the treatments on either arm. So arm meaning not physical arm, but whether they're getting the doxycycline, excuse me, or the ceftriaxone. Uh, Correct. And so, you know, we said there was about 100 people in each of the groups, and they sort of defined... Uh, improvement by clinical symptoms so um you know resolution of the rash and they also tested for you know the skin uh, there's no uh, with the rash resolving there was no skin to to culture but they looked at antibodies again and um essentially you know there was only like four to six people in each of the groups that had any sort of residual treatments and were quote you know had failed the, the the treatments and so in that sense they found that both of these treatments were uh, efficacious in answering that primary question of is doxycycline not inferior? Well, they proved it. It was. It worked just as well as the ceftriaxone. And interestingly, while it wasn't st- statistically significant, they did find there was a slight trend that the doxycycline may have actually been um, uh, a more effective treatment and had less side effects. They saw basically no, um, m- no major allergic reactions, some of the um, more concerning types of, you know, anaphylactic type reactions. There were fewer adverse side effects with the doxycycline as compared to the ceftriaxone. And, you know, I think everyone would rather take an oral medicine than have a, you know, IV in their arm um, or some other form of, you know, central line to give that medicine. Um, So this study clearly showed that despite this belief that maybe this was a worse or more disseminated disease because of multiple rashes, the oral doxycycline was actually just as good, if not trending towards being a better treatment um, when you think of it from sort of the multifaceted nature of uh, what makes a, a drug better than the ceftriaxone. So that's, on one hand, very encouraging. I mean, again, we're not dealing with Borrelia burgdorferi here. We're dealing with a European strain that neither of us can pronounce. <laughs> so we'll just yeah. leave it at that. A European strain of Borrelia. But with Borreliosis, that doxy is a good first pass treatment. If you see, if you have that rash, 
and you get the doxy right away, that's a good treatment. That's where you should start. I mean, that's that's the message I'm taking taking home from that. That you know, maybe you don't need to go heavy into some of these uh, other IV because all oh, we want to really hit it hard. We we're talking a little bit before, even you know, d- depending on just amounts of supplements that you're taking with different contexts, but it's like just because you take more of something doesn't mean it's more efficient or more effective. Efficacious is the word we're looking for here. So it's, it's encouraging that the standard treatment out there may be pretty good if you get it in time, if you get it in time. Yeah. And I don't think we're compromising. You know, some people may say, and we have talked before about, you know, uh, treating people even initially, for three to four weeks instead of you know, two weeks. Right. But this study at least shows, I think, gives us a little more comfort um, that if treated in a timely fashion, two weeks of doxycycline is doing a really good job. And if you're persisting with symptoms beyond that, the small, very small fraction um, that they did, and the study actually details what they did for some of these individuals, um, we'll go into it here, but there, you know, then you can look to do other supportive treatments or, you know, try to see, well, why are you still having symptoms that were you know, associating with this Lyme infection or this tick-borne infection? And actually what the study pointed out, and I think we'll probably get to, is, you know, brought up some debate as to the people who, quote, didn't respond. Um, are their, their symptoms actually truly a post-Lyme or post-tick-borne illness syndrome? Or um, is it really just what we might expect in the normal population. So this is interesting, and I'm going to spring this on you, and I should have sent you this earlier, but I forgot about that. And Aurora just reminded me. There's another wonderful study that's just come out, and the title is Persistent Borrelia Infection in Patients with Ongoing Symptoms of Lyme Disease. And what the study, so the study is Eva Shapi, it's Marianne uh, Middleveen, um, a couple of other people uh, put this together. They did tissue biopsies and um, they used uh, blood. They did skin tissue, uh, vaginal and semen secretions. Uh, and they, they were able to culture Borrelia in many of these people. So this, this study, and I know I'm springing this on you. So this study seems, seems to show with some of these people with ongoing symptoms that, yeah, the, the Borrelia is still around. And I'll, yeah. s- I'll send that to you because it's a, uh, I would love to look at that. Yeah. It's and I would a, love to see when, you know, bringing back the question of, well, these, in terms of these individuals, were they treated, you know, quote unquote, by our standard of care or in a timely manner, you know, start to a- ask those questions. It, um, but that is, it's a very, yeah, it's a reasonable. very, it's a very small sample. And they do have that information there for each person. Some of them have had, multiple lengthy antibiotics. And I don't think in the details, the discussion that they talk about how long exactly, maybe they have that in their notes somewhere, uh, but it doesn't show in, in the study, but they talked about months and, and multiple months of antibiotic therapy and some of it IV therapy. So it, again, it doesn't really, there's not enough uh, to tell which therapy did or did not fail, but it shows that in some cases, it can indeed persist. Yeah. So, so, and I'll just say that if some of you out there want, want to get your hands on this, it's open access and it's persistent Borrelia infection 
in patients with ongoing symptoms and Lyme disease. And one of the things I really love about this is they really dotted their I's and crossed their T's. You could see that they were expecting a lot of pushback on this. So they really went out of their way to make sure that they were testing the samples in sterile environments and there's no cross-contamination and to really trying to take out those confounding issues that can happen and mistakes that can happen in a study. They were really, really careful with it. So this is another super exciting study. And uh, again, I apologize for not sending it out in advance because I just forgot it. Brewer was smacking me upside the head. Said, <laughs> Don't you remember? I was like, oh, yeah, we talked about this last week over Chinese food in Hamilton, New York. Yeah. I took a look at this. So I'm going to send this right now to you because it's, it's that cool. Yeah. No, definitely send it over. And I think that brings up you know, probably the last two or three points that I want to make regarding the study um, is, you know, bringing this back to this particular study and comparing a, you know, IV medicine versus an oral medicine. Yeah, exactly. It may seem like, you know, that, you know, I would want, an individual would want the IV medicine because it's going straight. it's better. Stream, it, yeah. It's, you know, yeah, it's bypassing the, you know, the gut and um, you know, any types of metabolism that might happen first, the first pass metabolism in the liver. But the reality is, you know, drugs are incredibly complex molecules, and there's a lot of uh, oral medicines that have equal or better bioavailability, fancy word for basically you know, how um, available is the drug to act uh, in the way that it's been designed. And so I, certain IV medicines um, have less bioavailability than some oral medicines. So we can't just simply think of you know, IV as being uh, a better better medicine just by its formulation than an, uh, an oral version. Um, and the other piece of this too, and you bring it up with regards to these tissue samples, you know, we see it all the time in terms of, you know, quote, failed treatment with antibiotics. And it's so common in the hospital setting. And there's lots of different potential mechanisms. I mean, the thing we're most afraid of is, is true antibiotic resistance yeah. of the bacteria or, you know, selecting an antibiotic that as a mechanism of action that's not going to work for that type of bacteria. You know, you've talked about as well biofilms and, and that's you know the ability of you know bacteria to create these colonies that are you know resistant to the penetration by the the drug, the the drug itself. Um, but I think what people have to realize is that even getting into the bloodstream is just half the battle. You know, what we're talking about here is delivering the drug to the tissue and when you know uh when it comes to thinking about the where that molecule is going from the bloodstream there has to be diffusion through the blood vessel um and uh, across capillary beds which you know, most capillary beds are like one they allow one blood cell which is fascinating and we know that states of inflammation major infection there is capillary hypoperfusion and defects in regulation of blood flow at the capillary level, um, let alone if people have true you know, sort of macroscopic like vascular disease. You know, people with diabetes and really bad high blood pressure um, get so much damage and disease of their blood vessels that they, you know, they don't have a pulse in their foot. So how would you expect that medicine that gets into the bloodstream to actually penetrate the tissue um, that doesn't have any vascular or blood access? And so a lot of our trouble in this type of therapy is actually delivering the drug 
to the tissue where the infection um, may be occurring. And there's lots of reasons for that happening. I think the most interesting one and what's emerging in the literature is this, but truly the micro circulation, this capillary level, um, you know, hypoperfusion and the, the defects that we're seeing at, at that tiny level. Um, and then the last piece of it too is, we mentioned before, you know, these medicines are just kind of um, an aid to the immune system. You still have to clear the infection. If you can halt the replication of the bacteria um, enough that your immune system is able to sort of um, engulf it, clear it from the body, um, then it will be an effective medicine. Um, but if the immune system is so dysfunctional that it can't actually carry that um, you know, duty out, then you're going to see further resistance and treatment failure. So I think those points, while maybe a little, uh, little complicated, I think are incredibly important and relevant when we talk about you know, the potential success of this study and then comparing it to what they're finding in the study you just mentioned in terms of persistence of bacteria in, in tissue despite uh, multiple rounds of antibiotic therapy. Those are such important points and simplify a little bit. Circulation matters. Circulation matters. So get out and walk, <laughs> uh, and and keep those blood vessels healthy, so the body can deliver what it needs. And the second point is, we think of antibiotics as something like bleach that's going to go in there and kill the bacteria, but it ain't necessarily slow. It can inhibit the bacteria and give your immune system more of a chance to finish the job. And I think that's so important because we really, we simplify in our thinking as lay people. It's like, okay, I'm going to take an antibiotic. It's going to kill it. You know, and we, we know antibiotics don't work with viruses because they don't kill viruses, but we don't really think what it's actually doing. And so going back to the health of the immune system and keeping that online and keeping it strong and functioning properly and giving it the raw materials that it needs and giving it a rest from time to down-regulate the body and the stress level that you talk about so eloquently. It's just, you know, it's not, it's like, Dr. Abbott, how come things aren't simple? <laughs> I was just about to say, we want it, I wish it was oh. like, you know, so simple, you know, one protein for one illness, you know, one gene for one issue, and then one drug to solve it, and one those, ring to rule them all. One ring to one rule pill. them all. One <laughs> um, pill. You know, I wish it was that. That's simple. And, you know, some things are, um, quote unquote, simpler than, than others. But the reality is that the, the complexity, when you start to see things at a systems level, um, it always gets more complicated. And uh, so it's, um, and we do, I think, we don't do a great job of it in, in medicine, either both explaining and taking things down from a more complex level and trying to put it in maybe, you know, layman's terms to help us understand it. Our, creating analogies and metaphors to understand things and that can distort the reality of what's going on and the other piece of it too is you know all this is so new and um just being humble to say like really this we we never really have the full answer um when it comes to all of these things it's just it's um, we're exploring that's what science is it's an exploration so now that's a beautiful segue into you wanted to talk and i wanted to talk to you about a little bit more about detoxification. And last week's podcast, 
well, actually, this may be a couple of weeks after by the time this gets out, but a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Dr. Kelly and she introduced uh, to some people phase three. Now, phase three, the idea of phase three detox has been out there for a while. That's not her uh, particular invention there or whatever that word is for developing a new term. And what she's talking about in phase three is that the bile comes out of the liver, it contains the toxins, and it has to bind up with something in order to be eliminated out the colon. And if it doesn't get bound up, then it's much more likely to be reabsorbed back into the body. And she introduced us to an idea that she liked. She talks about phase two and a half, which I really like, which is the phase where once the body, the toxin has been reduced and, and broken down or, or stabilized a little bit with the glutathione, that then it has to get into the bile. It has to come out of the liver cells into the bile. And depending on some genetic mutations that may or may not happen as efficiently as we would like. And if it happens inefficiently, the liver and self-preservation spits these toxins back into the bloodstream. And then it's either your kidney's job to clear them out or they wreak havoc. And particularly, uh, in the, in the brain. So a lot of the, the brain fog symptoms come from this type of detox overload in this this one pathway but you have another phase that you wanted to introduce and i'm intrigued to hear more about it and that's phase zero <laughs> yeah and maybe we'll get it negative one after that we'll go the other way <laughs> we'll we'll probably just go into you know the negative numbers and, um yeah so i i really love that conversation i was really grateful for you know dr kelly to be able to talk about some of these emerging ideas and i will preface everything that i'm about to say once again that i am not an expert in detoxification i just haven't been around on this planet long enough for to be an expert in in anything um i am tremendously curious and i uh when i come across new ideas i usually seek to explore the literature and explore more about this idea and it's something that i've never come across before that really raises my eyebrows and says, well, why have I not even like, oh, heard of this at, at all? And so um, in the past month or two, as part of doing more research for some of our modules on you know, fatigue and looking into detoxification, um, mainly because I think it's just one of those terms that really bothered me um, and the way that it's used in the sort of natural integrative space, you know, all these detox cleanses and, and things, I uh, came across the work of, <clears throat> excuse me, Brian Walsh. And he has been perhaps, um, he's a natu naturopathic physician who has arguably some of the best material that's uh, in the biochemistry, um, sort of nutritional science world. And he uh, has had a few podcasts and um, written a few articles that pushed me to, to start reading and looking at the literature um, around detoxification. And what he was introducing was this concept of phase zero. Um, in addition to the sort of well-understood phase one, phase two, and emerging uh, you know, discussions around phase three. And as sort of a quick summary kind of, uh, of, of these phases tying into that previous podcast, you know, essentially the way I like to boil it down is this process of eliminating toxins from the body is you know, how do we get toxin into the cell responsible for eliminating the toxin. The, the liver cell is the primary. So we, um, all of us are familiar with, but first, how do we get it in? And then once, it, once it's there, how do we tag it to say, you need to move to the next step 
to get eliminated? Um, how do we then transform it into something that can be eliminated? And then how do we excrete it? So getting it in, tagging it, transforming it, and excreting it. And that sort of is, you know, in a nutshell, phase zero, one, two, embedded in there is 2.5, and phase three. And when it comes to that phase three that Dr. Kelly was talking about, you know, a lot of that is focused on the excretion. So basically, after all of the chemical modification that's happening in the liver, how is this you know, modified compound being excreted from the body? And I like to think there's sort of four or five primary means of you know, excreting that molecule. What she talked about was primarily in bile that can be eliminated in our stool. Uh, it also can be, you know, bile is recirculated into the blood and sort of processed through the kidneys. But we primarily are excreting these toxins through bile, through our stool, through our urine and the kidneys. We're also excreting toxins in our sweat, our tears. And we can also think about, you know, exhalation, um, our respirations, and that's actually um, more similar to sweat because it's really sort of the water vapor, um, and sort of these volatile organic compounds that we release. Um, but stool, urination, sweat, tears, and exhalation are the primary means of excreting these toxins, which we can sort of bundle under this greater term of phase three detoxification. That's a lot. And that's just the beginning. <laughs> so, so tell, tell us more. So I understand kind of the overall arc, right? So the body has to identify toxins. It has to gather them up. It has to transport them into organs who can then transform them or begin the elimination process. And then finally they have to be eliminated through the body. So, and the phase zero that we want to talk about is this initial phase where the body's recognizing, tagging, and transporting these toxins. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so let's go back to um, our liver cell. So say we are exposed to some toxin in our environment. Maybe we've you know ingested it. Maybe it's been absorbed through our skin. Maybe it's been directly put into the bloodstream. But let's say it makes it through the bloodstream and um, is trying to get into a liver cell or a hepatocyte so it can go through phase one and phase two detoxification. Um, I'll do a preface and sort of say, you know, I like to define toxin. I think we abuse that term in also the natural space, calling things such as sugar a toxin. And I won't get into the, I won't have an argument in, about, about that here, but the reality is, you know, uh, a toxin is a molecule or substance that inherently is damaging to the body, has a capacity to bioaccumulate, and in the context of detoxification, must be modified in order to be eliminated from the, the body. And sugar, as we know, serves a primary role in energy metabolism and cannot be considered inherently damaging and a toxin. Now, what people are probably referring to is um, that a substance can be toxic. So things that aren't toxins can be toxic based on the level of that molecule. So, you know, 
I think people also make the joke about water being uh, at really high levels being toxic or damaging to the body. And I you know, won't argue that, yes, at very high levels, sugar is going to exert you know, probably toxic effects, but it itself is not a toxin. And the toxins I'm um, referring to and more broadly going to talk about are things that require some form of modification to be eliminated. Things that are inherently water-soluble, um, we don't really think about that much um, because it's very um, they're readily removed from the body. The compounds that worry us are some of the heavy metals and lipophilic, fancy word for fat-loving molecules, the fat-soluble compounds that need to be modified in some way so that they can become water-soluble and then be eliminated. Those are the compounds that when we refer to toxins, really we are, you know, I'm addressing and that we're worried about and that have have to go through this you know, sequential process. So lipophilic are fat-soluble compounds. And there are many different categories of toxins people are probably familiar with. There's endocrine-disrupting molecules, there's plastics, there are volatile organic compounds, gasolines, um, uh, what have you. There are uh, other molecules. More broadly, I like the term xenobiotics. This kind of a term for sort of foreign molecule. Um, uh, you know, underneath the bigger umbrella of xenobiotics, you can have all of these other sort of uh, other toxins, but beneath them. So I'll sort of use the term xenobiotics from from here on out. Um, but uh, in order for that molecule to begin that journey, it has to be taken up into the liver cell. And we have, and we're just beginning to, I have two papers here that I've been reviewing in the last two weeks that um, are exhaustive categorizations of the proteins or transporters that are responsible for influx, are bringing in these uh, compounds into the hepatocyte. And sort of the, the one primary class has been best categorized is something called SLC10, or the solute carrier family of influx proteins and transporters. And these are essentially, you know, uh, these uh, transport proteins, something you know, very similar to what um, Dr. Kelly was talking about in the previous you know, podcast, these, you know, transporting uh, these, these transporters that are responsible for you know, bringing in and out certain compounds. And they've recently started to categorize within this greater family, family uh, one particular type of transporter that primarily deals with you know, uh, bringing in steroid molecules, certain drugs such as statins, and these xenobiotics. And really don't know enough at this point what impacts the presence or function of those transporters you know there's i'm sure some genetic and you know, predisposition for people having greater numbers of them or fewer numbers or higher functioning transporters or lower functioning or other fact factors in the body that might affect the presence of that transporter on the cell needless to say there are incredibly important transporters um, that their only responsibility is bringing in the compound into the liver cell where then it can begin that phase one process of hydroxylation is probably the most common, where it gets this little OH group and becomes more reactive, can move to phase two and go through the conjugation step, one that involves sulfation or 
glucuronidation, ma- making the molecule water soluble, and then preparing it to then be excreted into, in this case, it's going from the liver into the bile, um, and then eliminated through sort of phase three in in the stool. Um, so yes, that sort of phase zero step. Um, right now, I can't tell you like we should be taking curcumin to enhance phase zero. Those types, that type of like research and study, you know, doesn't exist, and we're just beginning to appreciate the role of these, you know, these transporting, uh, these transporters on multiple different um, tissue types. So I've talked about liver cells. These um, transporters are also present on kidney cells. Um, they're present present on enterocytes or intestinal cells. Um, so it's uh, when I look at this article, it's still even you know beyond the so complex. It's beyond my full capacity to understand but the reality is this is a is a key step that we're going to have to start to appreciate and the last point i'll make before moving to the uh, next discussion is uh, well why is it important to understand you know influx and outflux and i think we can start to realize that the cell is a cell because it's an organized structure that wants to control its environment we have all these specialized organelles and, you know, basically we create these, you know, differential membranes with hydrogen ions on one side or potassium ions on the other side, but it's this contained cell like a house. And so we need these transporters in order to regulate what is on one side of the cell or in one compartment of the cell and what's on the, the other. And uh, if a cell perceives that it needs that molecule to be inside of the cell, then it'll It'll do things, it'll change expression of proteins in order to facilitate that. If it perceives that, um, you know, on a greater scale, perhaps from other tissues, sending signals that, hey, do not release that compound, you know, out of the cell because we can't handle it right now, then they may downregulate processes to excrete that uh, compound from the cell. Um, and a lot of, you know, the Research in this has looked at drug metabolism or you know, resistance of certain drugs um, in cancer because certain medicines they recognize are resistant to being able to even get into the cancerous cell or the cell develops these efflux transporters that's so they're able to readily you know, remove the drug before it has any time to kind of do its actual function. Um, so that's kind of the real when you start to get practical about why does a cell have these, you know, these different transporters? Why is it modifying um, expression of them? And a very practical understanding of um, where this comes into play. I think that's when you start to realize, wow, I should be paying attention to this. This isn't just something that's for for scientists to explain and and um, fancy language in, in their papers. You know, two things come to mind, and the first is to talk about practical understanding is make sense of what we all know that if you drink a lot of alcohol you become resistant to alcohol if you take certain drugs you become resistant to the effects of the drug and you know that sounds like maybe that mechanism may be in play there and then the second thing is and we talked about this earlier that we want to simplify things and understanding and really up to this point my understanding of the liver and even the kidneys to some degree that it was a little bit like a reverse osmosis machine for water, that it took everything out, that there wasn't some other process that had to 
trigger transportation of these uh, poisons, toxins, actual toxins in the body, that the liver would just filter it all out. And the only reason it didn't was that it was at capacity. So essentially just couldn't handle anymore. And so it kind of circulated around. But what you're saying is, wait a minute, there's this whole other process of being able to identify and move these toxins inside the cells so we can begin to take them out again. And, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's so incredible and so complex. And it would be wonderful to begin to identify. And, and may, maybe some of this work has been done uh, by herbalists out there, but it's like, what, what supports this phase zero? You know, what, yeah. what gets these toxins into the liver uh, and, and, and supports that or the upregulation of these proteins that need to be these transporter proteins, these SLC, what do you say? SLC 10? Was it? Yeah. SLC 10. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. I mean, we have to recognize that, you know, in understanding this full process, there needs to be support at all phases, right? So as Dr. Kelly was mentioning, you know, if someone has a compromised phase three, you can be giving them all the nutrients in the world to support phase one, phase two, but actually it probably is going to be more detrimental to them because they have nowhere to eliminate it. Or in a very practical sense too, we talked about, you know, bowel movements. If someone's constipated, I don't care if they're actually giving everything out into the bile. They're not, they're not having a bowel movement, not eliminating that in their stool. Um, and so at the end of the day, that's, that's a, that's a big problem. Um, and so we're going to need to support people and maybe I start to identify where along that chain is the weak link, link for an individual. Um, the, the reality is the, the things that we are doing now with, you know, mega dosing of certain compounds, milk thistle and, you know, curcumin and some of the catechins from green tea and things that have been, you know, fairly well studied to have effects on you know, phase one or phase two um, is just we don't we just don't know we really don't know what all of these compounds are doing and the reality perhaps scary thing is a lot of these compounds have biphasic responses which essentially means at a low dose it may inhibit phase two or but at a higher dose it's uh, stimulates phase one. Um, and maybe that's actually only in the liver and that it has another effect in stimulating the, you know, another process and a kidney cell. And so this biphasic curve where you're seeing a different response for this molecule, depending on the, the dose of it, um, just makes everything so complex. And the reality is most of the things that we're recommending are giving isolated compounds at supra-physiologic doses. And uh, a lot of them actually have inhibiting effects on phase three. Um, one of the more common ones that um, uh, Dr. Walsh introduced me to is the reality of why we add black pepper to uh, curcumin. And people talk about it increasing absorption. Well, one of the effects is that it blocks phase three. And so you start to think, well, that makes sense if the cell wants to keep the curcumin you know keep the, the turmeric the curcuminoids in the cell it makes sense that if we block phase three we're going to keep it um with, within the cell to have further activity um and so but that may not be what's you what you want for an individual maybe you want to optimize phase three um you know in certain situations that may be advantageous in other situations it may not be 
And so just simply saying that turmeric or curcumin is, you know, supports detoxification is just so simple and, and unfortunately um, can be very wrong and, and, and hurtful to people. You know, luckily, the, the things that are being done probably are more financially hurtful than, you know, uh, than gross you know, physical harm. But it's, it's very concerning to me um, that these various cleanses and, and programs get put out because we really just don't know. And some of the studies that I've looked into that Dr. Walsh pointed me to um, have actually looked at at foods, right? So turmeric root or leeks or garlic. And some actually really pulled up some really interesting ones. I looked at very specific amounts of certain, you know, certain foods. Like one he always mentions is like a cup, you know, one and a third cups of, of leek. And but looking at the effects on the activity of phase one and phase two based on some of these foods. And so his protocol, what he's developed as a what detoxification program, it's actually centered around food and hardly any supplements, mainly out of the recognition that, yes, they might be helpful, but I just don't know. I can't with any certainty tell you to take these compounds at this super physiologic level. So perhaps let's stick to you know, certain foods. You know, mung bean sprouts was another one he mentioned. Um, but let's stick to, to, to certain foods and try to avoid inhibiting a phase that we otherwise wouldn't want to inhibit um, or that needs support. And uh, so it's just, you know, perhaps I got on a little soapbox there, but it's, uh, it's something we really need to be cognizant of in this space. And because this is, this is very new and feel a lot more comfortable prescribing food and maybe some of these you know, new binders uh, as a way to support phase three, but keeping a much wider view of what's you know, going on and not just simply giving people the, the green smoothie to fix everything. That's a lot to chew on, and I think we're going to wrap up our discussion there. Not, we don't have to end like right now, but in the next couple minutes, and because I, w- I want to bring that to a close, and I want to say in support of what you're saying, because I know a lot of people out there are taking supplements, and a lot of people are out there taking supplements and crediting them with feeling a lot better. But part of what Doctor Abbott's saying is. Nobody really, truly knows. They may have some experience and had general success with a supplement or a group of supplements. But you have to have some courage and risk tolerance and be willing to experiment if you're going to, if you're going to supplement. Cause as he says, there is very little literature out there. And especially as you start messing with the dosage. And so what he's saying, you could take one capsule that has one effect and you take six capsules, which makes sense, right? I'm going to up my dosage and get a better effect, but it may be having a completely different effect. So not only do you have to pay attention to what your individual response is based on your symptoms and your infections and your whatever, your genetics and everything else that's going on. So it may be different than your neighbors or your friends or your, your spouse, but it also matters the dosage so that when you start out on a protocol like a Cowden protocol with one drop of something, it may have an effect. And then the, so the Herxheimer effect that you maybe experience at 10 drops may not be a Herxheimer effect. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it may be that it's pushing another pathway or something else somewhere else in the body that you're just not responding to very well. And so it's, it's a fascinating idea and it's a, it's a very interesting caution because 
you know, we we do live in the area, and and I am, you know, I'm a fan of supplements and herbal medicine and Chinese herbs, and um, you know, I always start slow with the patient and assume that okay, since it's okay at a low dose, that just moving up to the 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 standard dose of it is just going to be more of the same. But once again, we're dealing with these complex interrelated systems where you know one plus one doesn't always equal two. You had the second pill, maybe you're getting ten or something like that. So that's it's just fascinating. So be kind to yourself, be gentle, trust, trust your body's reactions. If you have a bad reaction to something, you're having a bad reaction. It may not be a herx. We don't we don't need these super herx people out there saying, Yeah, I must be doing great because I feel like yeah. shit. <laughs> Excuse yeah. my language, right? Um Yes, and I think, you know, that brings me back to probably making my final point for something you know, something for people to, to chew on is I mentioned that idea of a lipophilic molecule, the things that are fat soluble. And people have probably also heard that, you know, these things are stored in fatty tissue. This is another area that's still relatively new. And I've, I've been looking for um, papers that help to categorize really how is this process occurring. But yes, some of these heavy metals, some of these fat soluble compounds are being stored in adipose tissue. And if we put an evolutionary lens on, it actually is makes complete sense from a protective mechanism. You know, adipose tissue is what we're understanding. It's much more complex than we previously thought. It's still a relatively inert tissue, um, and that it's, it will be probably more beneficial to the host to store a potentially toxic fat soluble compound in adipose tissue, where it can be fairly regulated and not released back into the bloodstream. You know, I make the comparison of. You know, if we stored these things in glycogen, which we're readily depleting every day um, in muscle tissue and in the liver, that would probably be, be a problem. Um, so recognizing that a lot of these fat-soluble compounds get stored in adipose tissue and that it's probably a protective mechanism. And so that anything that stimulates lipolysis or the breakdown of fatty tissue is going to release these, uh, these toxins. And this is something that's probably not, not new to folks. but the, the reality is, what is scary to me is a third of Americans are obese and two-thirds are overweight. So increased adiposity is not something that you know only a fraction of our country is dealing with. This is a, a huge issue. And one of the things that certainly emerged, everyone wants to lose weight. And fasting as well has been something that's been you know, espoused as being a positive benefit. And now, the reality is fasting is going to do a couple things. One of them is, yes, you're going to start burning fatty tissue because you're not consuming the calories themselves. So you're going to start to release some of these molecules. And I would argue that most of the individuals that are starting to recommend fast or try to lose weight are probably not prepared at these different phases to handle that new toxic burden. And the scary thing is, too, we don't have any tests to determine total body burden. Right now, you know, we have these tests of urinary excretion and hair analysis. We have nothing right now that can definitively tell you what is your body burden. All we know is these compounds are ubiquitous. You are exposed. And because you're exposed, that it's, it's an issue for everyone. But we have no way right now to determine you know, total body burden. And there's been a lot of studies in mice looking at you know, the role of fasting and lipolysis. And yes, these compounds do increase in the blood when you have caloric restriction, when you have lipolysis. And most people, as I mentioned, are probably not in a state where they're ready to handle this sudden influx of compounds. And maybe we need to be 
a lot more careful about supporting people with maybe a infrared sauna, with nutritional support, with other means of, you know, with binding, you know, with binders, with other means to help them through that, uh, that process. Um, it's just something we really need to be aware of and, uh, and, and simply not, you know, just recommending, oh, this is the new thing. Everyone needs, needs to, to fast and to lose all that weight. So that also, once again, was maybe getting on a soapbox, but something to start thinking about before you start going, you know, your clinician recommending everyone start fasting and everyone start, um, you know, lose all this weight and, and be healthier. That's so interesting because one of the things that really helped me when my arm went dead and recovering, uh, the period of time, I only fasted for seriously for about 48 hours, but was in uh, ketosis for a good couple weeks after that. Uh, that's when my, the, the healing of my arm made the most progress. And, um, I've been, yeah, it's like fasting's great, but you bring up a good point. And there are people out there who talk about weight gain as possibly an adaptation to deal with environmental, I'm going to say toxin. You got it. So, yeah. you know, so, so reversing that takes, takes something. So Dr. Abbott, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. Why don't you tell us how people can get hold of Oh God, I forgot his name already. Dr. Walsh, right? Yes. Um, so once again, you know, nearly everything that I've communicated here has been either you know, taken from Dr. Walsh or spurred by his you know, push to discover uh, and look more into detoxification. But you know, Dr. Brian Walsh, if you, you Google him, he's a naturopathic doctor. He has two really great educational programs. Um, one is sort of focused on blood sugar. And then he has this metabolic program where he digs into his detoxification program specifically. And there's a couple podcasts, Nourish Bounce, Thrive is one that I would recommend listening to where he delves into much of what I've just described. And I'll, I'll try to send a couple of the, the papers as well for people who are really, really curious if you want to have it on the, um, the podcast page. But definitely check out his, uh, his work. He, he proclaims himself he's so busy that he doesn't listen to podcast so almost guarantee he will not hear this <laughs> um but he's been on he's been on a, a couple um and has some some great work um so definitely push people in his his direction thanks again yeah of course thank you for, for having me back again this is always a pleasure it gives me permission to go down ridiculous rabbit holes so thank you we're happy to follow you <laughs> thanks This was a great interview. And, you know, these past few weeks, I've had the words toxins and toxic and detox thrown at me so many times that's kind of lost meaning for me. So to be able to listen to Rob Abbott, to kind of sit down, get back to brass tacks and say, no, this is what it means in a, just this is what yes, it means. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Abbott, for setting us straight and once again. Giving us some clarity again, some meaning again, I guess. We appreciate it. Aurora and I just got back from the Mid Coast Maine Lime Conference in Augusta, Maine. And that's one reason why we're about 12 hours behind here. That's my excuse, anyway. <laughs> we were about 14 hours in the car. So the podcast's about 12 hours late, 14 hours late. 
We had a blast up there, met some amazing people. It's a great conference put on by Paula Jackson-Jones and Angel Rice, and we met their good friend Bob Sabatino, and he just was selected to be fill the vacancy on the tick-borne disease working group that the Department of Health and Human Services is putting together. So that's exciting news. There are all kinds of movers and, sh- movers and shakers up there. Dr. Cowden was there. Dr. Spector. Dr. Dr. Neil Rawls. Spector. Yes. Dr. Rawls, who we're giving away his book. If you haven't entered to win his book, go to LimeNinjaRadio.com front slash win and win his book. Yes. He's a lovely semi-retired physician. Now he's doing his work with herbs and helping people with Lyme and other chronic illnesses like that. It's really quite an amazing man to talk to. Who else was Kristen that? Honey. Kristen Honey. Kristen Honey, whose Lyme story is amazing. She's out there on YouTube. You definitely need to look her up and her story. And the work she's doing, sponsored by Stanford and the White House on this tick-borne working group, is amazing. The, the government gears are starting to turn. Those are big gears. They move slowly, but the wheel's turning. And it's going to help a lot. It's going to give a lot of prestige and authority to some of these kind of things we know about Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses and is not yet out there in the physician community. Having the government backing will make a big difference. Just think about how much all the low-fat craze, and I'm not a big fan of low-fat craze, but the government said you should eat low-fat, and that's what everybody did. So having the government stamp of approval is going to make a big, big difference. There are good people in that working group. I think they're going to come up with good recommendations. Not perfect recommendations, but good recommendations. We need to get her on here to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I'd love to do that, actually. And Dr. Jotsna Shah out of Igenics, I would love to have her on here as well. She is the cutest little PhD you're ever going to want to meet. And I have a whole new respect for Igenics and where they're going and the research they're doing there. They're yeah. so far, they're three, four, five, six steps ahead of just about any other lab out there. And really, that's the number one recommendation in the States. Send them out to Igenics at this point. Really, it's yeah. a it's a credible lab. They've got all the paperwork in place, all the approvals. Anything you've heard otherwise is just a nasty rumor. Yeah, and we, I mean, we already knew that Igenics was really good and just talking to, uh, just listening to Jotsna, Dr. Jotsna Shah speak just kind of cemented that. It's like, okay, this is the brain that's behind it all. It was, it was pretty incredible. She is an impressive woman. Yes, she is. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please go to iTunes, leave us a review. And if you really like what we're doing, head on over to patreon.com and become a patron. Just going over to patreon.com and search for Lime Ninja Radio will pop up. And then you can choose between supporting us at $3 a month, which we think just about anybody can do, and then $10 a month if you have a little bit extra cash. And if you donate at the $10 level, we will give you a copy of our top 10 transcripts. The Lime Ninja Top 10 Transcripts are the concentrated wisdom of three years of podcast episodes featuring experts like Dr. Richard Porowitz, the real food rebel Brenda Constantino, and genetic nutrition expert Bob Miller. And if you have any feedback for us, good, bad, ugly, we love to hear it. Just send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. That's feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. 
Also, if you don't know your Lyme score yet, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com for runt slash tracker and fill out the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free. It is free. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with a Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know cell phones never autocorrect a ninja? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.